All right, here we are in the hot stove kitchen right here in downtown Seattle at the beautiful, beautiful Hotel Andra. We've got a lively audience this morning. Chef Terry is forcing them hard labor to uh, applaud. I got a big gun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We like I said, we're here at the beautiful Hotel Audra, Fourth and Virginia in downtown. You know, we're kind of surrounded by my joints down here. Sirius Pie across the street, Dahlia Bakery across the street, Lola downstairs, and of course, uh, we come to you directly from the Hot Stove Society kitchen. Uh, we are now uh, not on Facebook anymore. We are on our own YouTube channel. And Yay. so, Pamela, what, uh, what what do people look for if they want to find us and watch us live? They're going to go right to the Ooh Tom Douglas uh, website and hot stove radio and there is a link right there to youtube and asking you to subscribe please do it it doesn't cost a penny to subscribe you might even win a prize uh you Ooh. might not i'm not, uh, I'm not uh, <laughs> wait a minute i'm uh, gonna unsubscribe and resubscribe yeah. <laughs> I, i'm just saying that if we get over 100 subscribers that really helps us and it's free so Correct. how hard could it be i would trust that with all of our faithful listeners out there that They'll get on and subscribe just as a favor to us. So one more time, go to TomDouglasRestaurant.com and then sign up on... Yep, you'll see Hot Stove Radio and the link to YouTube is right there. Yeah, right. scroll down a little bit. And you can't just go to YouTube? It would take yet, some... It takes some a little more navigating. navigating. Okay. You have to be determined. Well, this way you also get to see my website, which is quite spectacular. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Terry Rotiro, the chef in a hat. Congratulations, Chef. You know, introducing you takes a lot less time now that you're, I know. Uh, it's nice. you don't have a bunch of restaurants to talk about. Exactly. Yeah. I do have restaurants. I have uh, the Seatown restaurant on the north end of the Pike Place Market area down there. And, uh, of course, I uh, have the Sirius Pie Ballard out uh, at our warehouse at 52nd and 14th Northwest. It's a good place to kind of have a car date. You oh, know? really? A car date? Yeah. Well, you call, you pick up a pizza, maybe you drive down the Golden Gardens. Sit in the parking lot or get out on one of the picnic tables and uh, have you, a little... And party. you don't have just pizza. You have the sandwiches and... Oh, yeah. Pizza. I'm just saying uh, sometimes people don't know what to do. Right, like it's, right, it's, right. It's, it's pretty much all to go. We have some picnic tables, but, uh, but it's a fun time to take your pie and go drive someplace that maybe you hadn't been for a while. On a pissing rain day, that would be a fabulous thing to do. Well, <laughs> don't want to be eating your pizza outside. Yes, that's true. <laughs> um, we have a large show for you this week. Uh, you know, it's so hard not to say we're excited about our benefit tonight for Ukraine uh, because we're not excited about it. We wish we didn't have to do it, but we are sold out at our event here at the Hot Stove tonight uh, for Ukraine. We're doing a Ukrainian supper with, with uh, some Ukrainian music. Is that right? Yep, and an acoustic bandera player. Nice. And I know I'm making uh, one station tonight. I'm making potato pancakes. So uh, Danica is going to come here. She's calling us to talk about how she connected us to the Ukrainian community. Right. So Danica is my partner, Eric's wife, who was in Ukraine for the, most of the last six months until the State Department told her to go home uh, working. Um, I'm, I'm not allowed to say what she does, I don't think. So nope. she was just working for, for in Ukraine and fell in love with the place and is now trying to help organize some events and things of that nature. So Those people uh, need help. Tonight's uh, fundraiser goes to care.org. If you want to join us but you can't get down here, just go on. Make a donation. Last week we worked for uh, World Central Kitchen, Jose mm -hmm. Andres. Uh, we, we both know Jose and yeah. a fine fellow. And his charitable organization has become a big deal. On CNN, Huge. you see it every day. Huge. World Central Kitchen every yeah. day. And so we've been uh, sending money there. And thanks to our listeners and the people who came to our restaurants last Sunday, we sent check for $21,000. Awesome. 
Uh, so we're going to celebrate yes. uh, the Ukrainian culture today. Uh, we have a cookbook that uh, we're going to recommend. I was looking through it. It's so beautiful. It's called Mamush, Mamushka. And so here's what I would uh, encourage people to do. If you can't find the book, at least go online, read some of the recipes. Cook a dinner. Cook a Ukrainian yeah. dinner. Invite friends over. Ask them for $10 and get some money together because we need to feed all these. There's over 3 million refugees right now uh, in the last four weeks. And we know what 100 looks like in our restaurant. And um, 3 million million sounds a little bit overwhelming. Go online, cook some Ukrainian food, and try and raise some money for your favorite uh, charitable organization that's trying to help out over there right now. We're going to talk about gas stoves. You know, there's a push in our city council and in uh, many urban city councils to get rid of gas stoves, uh, which would push us into electric induction. Uh, So I'm going to... I've worked on a few of those. Bridget's here. She does a lot of stage work for uh, chefs around the country. And we're going to hear more about induction burn, uh, cooking. You might have to buy new pans is all I'm going to say to that. And uh, first, no, first you have to get a new stove. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And new pans go with it. So it's a, uh, we look at it as a shopping opportunity. Uh, in honor of Women's History Month, uh, we shout out to our favorite uh, formative female culinary titans, including... The beautiful Julia Child, one of our all-time favorites here. I look for her birthday party here at the hot stove in August. We do that annually. Uh, peak season, Chef uh, Celeriac. Celeriac. Yes, that. <laughs> yes, I hate that. That was a hard one. That was a tongue twister for you. <laughs> it certainly was. The, the hollandaise from my eggs Benedict this morning is making my tongue sticky. It's a tough life that I've done. Yeah, you do have a tough life. And uh, we're going to talk purpose. about roasting marrow bones. First, though, uh, I went to the symphony last night. Oh, wow. Which I haven't done. Uh, my wife had the coolest Christmas present for me this year. She got me six date nights. And so... Six different nights. Symphony, the opera, with somebody else, not hers. <laughs> she was just trying to get rid of me. No, uh, six date nights, and so she had tickets for six different events. Oh, that's so uh, sweet. Like I said, symphony, the opera, I think a cracking game. You know, just six things that we haven't done yet. And uh, so last night was the first one. I've already had to cancel the first two because we had conflicts. But <laughs> <laughs> last night was the first we one did. we actually yeah, got yeah. together. We so missed it, the opera, right? So for all of you girls yeah. out there who want to date Tom Douglas, it's tough. <laughs> yeah. I only need one date. Yeah. That's my girlfriend, Obviously, Jackie. And he might cancel it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so we did the classic. We, uh, you know, we went to Ben Royal Hall across the street. Guess what restaurant? Ginger. Wild Ginger's back open. Uh, it was classic. We sat at the bar. They're so shorthanded. You know, they're just, yeah. they can only seat half the room because they just don't have enough people. But it was just, it was fun to sit down. And so my taste of the week is the Anger, Anchor Wat chicken, which oh, yeah. is uh, what I think is unusual about this chicken. It's wok seared with green peppers, red peppers, onions, uh, lots of uh, basil, and, and um, I think dill or cilantro. But what's cool about it is that the chicken is cooked first. It's like a roasted chicken, then chopped, then wok seared. It's got a totally different texture than if you just put raw chicken into a hot wok. Right, absolutely. And I, I really like that. It's like that soy sauce chicken or, yeah. that you get at a Chinese, uh, Chinatown barbecue window. What's it's your taste n- of the It's week? nice to see that part of downtown coming back to life. I uh, tell you it's that. tough. I've got to say it's ground zero oh, down of there. Of course, of yeah. course. Uh, my taste of the week, I'm going to go with the brisket I made yesterday for in honor of St. Patty's Day. Nice. And uh, I made it mostly for my kids because 
I couldn't possibly eat. Uh, I'm trying to watch my. Uh, you ate a lot of my uh, top round. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why I couldn't do it twice week. in one week. in last week. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just got a a brisket with a. Uh, it said no nitrate, no you know, no 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 stuff well, like that. Why'd you buy it then? Um, because I wanted one. Anyway, <laughs> I did my own. Uh, I did. A, I did a little cure of, you know, fresh thyme and all kind of different things like this, all kind of herbs. But I did a. a I sealed the fatty side of, a, of the brisket first, mm-hmm. and then uh, underneath I put, I had some fat on my countertop, I always have some fat, and I used a bunch of quartered onion, carrots from the, from the garden, they were gorgeous, they were totally twisted, and, uh-huh. but they were tasty, and um, cabbage and potatoes, and uh, made a whole batch of that in my enamel, Le Creuset big pot, you know, and oh my God. Oh my red God. Wine, red wine. Turns ap- out you're an incredible cook, chef. No, no, no. <laughs> Turns out to be, I love brisket. Yeah. <laughs> now, did you corn it? You didn't. Doesn't sound like you it corned was, it. It was already. Corned. Oh, you already corned. It yeah, was yeah. already corned. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, I gave people wrong information last week. It wasn't quite as bad as uh, our producers. Broccoli has more protein than beef does. But I did say that you could get the Snake River Farm top round that we yeah. had at Shoreline or Ballard Markets, and I actually had picked it up at Costco. Oh, man. I didn't realize. Ooh, I talked to the Shoreline folks yesterday. They said, we've been getting these calls, and we don't know what you're talking about. Because <laughs> I was trying to buy another one. But no, it didn't quite work out. All right, stay with us. we got a big show for you. Uh, Ukraine's up next on Cairo. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Welcome back. It's the Hot Stove Society Show here at the Hotel Andra in downtown Seattle. On Friday night, that is tonight, we're hosting an event for Care.org, one of the many Ukrainian relief funds that are out there right now. And my partner, Eric Tanaka's wife, Danica Noble, recently returned from a stint in Kiev, or Kiev, as I've learned how to pronounce it, uh, watching CNN, and felt strongly about assisting displaced children and families, which... God, it's just so soul-crunching when you watch it on TV. Um, I can't even imagine the trauma, uh, which is the central work of care. So she got busy connecting us, which is why we're doing our big Ukrainian supper tonight with the Ukrainian community here in the Seattle area. So we thought it might be interesting for Danica to connect our listeners if people want to support and to do their, kind of like their own little event at their own home uh, with maybe some Ukrainian products of that are out and about. So, hi, Danica. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Tell us about uh, your interest in Ukraine and, and how, what you fell in love with over there while you spent some time there and, and maybe where people can find uh, some products around Seattle or some interesting clubs, Ukrainian clubs or whatever it is, however you found the music that we're having tonight or the bakers that we're going to uh, support, things like that. Well, I had the good fortune to get the opportunity to travel to Ukraine and to live in Kyiv, and I got to work alongside some Ukrainians, and it was a tremendous experience. I really enjoyed it, and while I was there, um, just as I would do anywhere, I certainly tried to eat as much as I could, and I found that there was some really delicious food there. Um, one of my favorites actually was across the street from the apartment I stayed in was what we might call a farmer's market, but they would call a peasant's market. And it was um, folks who grew all sorts of fruits and vegetables and nuts on their own 
uh, farms, their own personal farms. They're called dachas. And they would, they would come and they would sell them kind of farmer market style on, on the street just across uh, from my apartment. And I was struck while I was there, you know, I'd want some tomatoes or cucumbers. And there would just be so many varieties and so many colors, nothing standard, just what people had been growing uh, in their homes. So that was really neat and fun to taste a lot of different varieties of, of vegetables uh, and fruit grown over there. So I really enjoyed that. So that's different, say, like when you go down to a market in Paris, right? You're, they're generally traveling markets they set up on a day of the week, and they're often buying food from wholesale houses that are then now in the market. Yeah, this is the uh, fruits and vegetables that people had had grown on their own, you know, pieces of property. And, yeah. and eggs, so beautiful. Tomatoes that were so tasty. I think it happens also in, uh, more like in North Africa. I've seen that in, in North Africa as well. People... From their own garden, they come up to the market because mm-hmm. it's not like she said; it's not a farmer's market. It's more like it's just a market. Yeah, and then but you know, yeah, you people keep, have access. And come they... with a chair on the table, and then yeah. you put your stuff on it, and then you sell it. You know, and that's an extra income for their household. What else struck you about the food over there, Danica, and the traditions of around the table? I learned uh, that Ukraine speaks the same love language as I do, which is a language of bread, um, <laughs> and. So just as often as you'd see a trash can or a stoplight, you would see a mini bread kiosk on the street in Kiev. So these are women who are, uh, often women, baking bread all day, and it's just fresh, and it comes out hot, and, and I love the bread there. I would gain some weight <laughs> quickly in Ukraine. <laughs> oh. One of the first things I did was also run in a, a half marathon there to, to keep up. <laughs> Uh, because, yeah, there was a lot of bread I was eating, uh, and it was great. So uh, wheat and bread are very important in Ukraine. And so one of the things I noticed is at, um, you know, official events, if they were recognizing someone, or even at memorials where we might expect to see bouquets of flowers, we would often see bouquets of wheat there, uh, just oh, marking oh. how important it is. I think between Russia and Ukraine, that's a, uh, they're the only... I think they produce more than the U.S. does in wheat. Oh, I yeah. think we're the, yeah. It's They're the biggest huge... producer of wheat in the world. Yeah, big big market. And uh, uh, cheesy bread, too. Lots of stuffed uh, doughs, like kefir dough. Yeah, a lot of cheesy bread. And that, that really is something I enjoy a lot. So um, my standard lunch would be going downstairs from the building I worked in and, and trying one of the maybe 17 kiosks within a block of where I work and just sampling their various cheesy breads. Okay, so if people want to, we're doing this event tonight. I'm sure you're going to be here. Uh, if people want to think Ukrainian for a while here in Seattle, where have you found some uh, access points to products that people might find useful to put on a Ukrainian supper? Uh, there are some rich Ukrainian cultural roots here in Seattle. The Ukrainian Association of Washington uh, has been around since the early 70s, and they have... Uh, been instrumental in kind of creating some of the rallies in support of Ukraine, and they are collecting an enormous amount of, of aid, and they've got a website. Um, that's nice. But as far as food, we are so lucky uh, up where Eric and I live, uh, because on, a, on about 132nd in Aurora is a grocery store and cafe called European Foods. And this is owned and run by uh, a Ukrainian uh, woman, Oksana, and her son, Greg. 
and they carry a variety of foods from not just Ukraine, uh, but also Bulgaria, Moldova, Romania, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland. And they have uh, a cafe adjacent to this uh, store. And Eric and I have eaten there a few times, and it is really terrifically delicious. So for the event tonight, we are having them prepare some of the foods that we really enjoyed. And so the folks who attend tonight will get to sample. Um, but I would really recommend that as uh, kind of an undercover food destination for Seattle. Uh, go visit it sometime. They're, they're open um, six days a week. And if you order something in the cafe, uh, Oksana comes out from the kitchen, checks with you, and then just, you know, whips it up from scratch. It, it, it's pretty delicious. So I would say that was uh, a real gem of a place to check out. So it's called, uh, once again, it's called the European um, Foods. Foods. European, European Foods. Foods. I wish that, uh, you know, I know everyone that's listening right now, uh, sorry, this happened last night <laughs> here at the hot stove or Friday night, uh, the 18th. But uh, we wish that, uh, I think our goal here today is not, is just to kind of help keep the awareness up about what's going on in Ukraine and don't let it slip away. I know we have short attention spans, but this is a big deal. Don't let it slip away in your world and maybe go out and make a Ukrainian supper for your friends. God, the mutton soup that's in this book. Uh, the, the book that I'm working out of tonight is called Mamushka, M-A-M-U-S-H-K-A. Uh, it's a cookbook by Olia Hercules, which is good because my my grandson's name I is Hercules. You were going there. <laughs> it's recipes from Ukraine and Eastern Europe. Danica, if you don't have this book, I think you would love it. I think you're going to gift you know, it to I've her. You know, I've looked at it online, but it's sold out everywhere. So we're on some waiting lists. We, we want to get that. It does look beautiful. Yeah, the, the recipes are amazing looking. Uh, well, thank you for jumping in and finding us a musician for tonight. And we're, we're going to uh, try and raise a lot of money. I know it, it, just through tickets, we're at 12000 So we'll have to see what else we can put in the mix there to try and get up to 15000 or 20000 Yes, thank you so much for your help on this, Danica. That's really cool. Well, it really is my pleasure, and, and the thanks goes to uh, you and to the incredible talents of Hot Soap Society and Pamela and, and making this happen. Um, couldn't, couldn't have been nearly as successful without you, so I really appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. It's in your honor. Uh, okay, when we come back, we still have a, a long, long time to go on this show, but Chef Terry, what are we going to talk about in the next segment? Celeriac. Yes, indeed Also known as Celery Roots. Yes, that's how I like to say it, celery root. <laughs> uh, when we come back, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. We're back. It's the Hot Stove Society Show. I'm Terry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. And I'm Tom Douglas. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, I had a delicious breakfast at Lola this morning, and it's... It's still there? Well, I only meant um, to eat half. Oh. It was Eggs Benedict, but it was really good. Yeah, no kidding. So I ate the whole damn thing. I had cereal, just so you know. Good job, chef. Let's talk celeriac. <laughs> so this is a French word, by the way, celeriac. Oh, is, really? But yeah. in the store, you're not going to see it. Most likely, you're going to see it on the celery root. Mm -hmm. And it's that, uh, that big, giant bowl that you see in the vegetable section. Then you walk by. And it's deformed, and you look at it, and you go, hmm, interesting. And then you walk by. <laughs> yeah, you don't buy it. <laughs> you don't buy it because you're like, most people, are like, they take it in their hand, they go, 
What could you possibly do? With well, this? oftentimes, so it's got the rounded top, uh, which gets a little green right up by the roots, yep. uh, right, right up by the, the upper leaf. growth. And then the bottom is a little bit, kind of has kind of hairy roots on the bottom yep. that are almost always trimmed, but there's lots of nooks and crannies. And that, nubbies. And, yeah. yeah. So, no, it's... Uh, it it is, is intimidating if you have never cooked with it before. It is not attractive on the outside, but yet delicious on the inside. I mean, I think, I think it's one of those super well-hidden gems. So let's talk about how to buy it first. So like, like for many things in produce, to me, when I pick it up, I want it to feel heavy for its size. Correct. And I want it to be nice and firm. If it's spongy, Correct. it's been sitting around too long. Yeah. If it's spongy, it's going to be uh, plenty of holes in it. It's going to be melting in your pan before you even start. Yeah. It's not going to be as tasty for sure. So, yes, all of so the Nice above. and firm, heavy for its size. Absolutely. And then uh, next thing you do, you bring it home. Yeah. You give it a good scrub with, like, uh, your, your dish scrubber. Or. Because it has serious nooks and crannies. Or you peel it with a knife. No, you have to scrub it first because it's, it, it's a root. It often is dirty, dirty. Yeah, yeah, but, I mean, if you take a knife and you peel it, you're going to get rid of everything, including the skin. Okay, so there's, <laughs> there's that question about it, because you, when, if you take a knife and peel it, you're going to lose about at least 25 or 30% of your root, well, right? You, okay, so number one, and most foremost, if you really want to peel a celery root to the tender part, there is a skin and there is a layer right below the skin that you see that marks the celery root. Mm-hmm. You peel below that because mm-hmm. that's the woody part. And if you peel below that, you'll have nothing but white meat and gorgeous meat. There is a little waste on the skin of a celery root. Just like turnips. Especially at the bottom where the, the root nubs are. Correct. Yeah. So, and I always use a knife. I never use a peeler to do a celery root because it's, it's useless actually in that, in that section. Yeah, we'll, just, we'll just agree to disagree on that. It's okay. It's, it's, uh, because I hate throwing all that product away. Well, I hate throwing anything away, but there are certain limits. I was doing a stage at the Union Square Cafe in Manhattan uh-huh. one time, and I was, watched them take – no, it was the Gramercy Tavern. I watched them take a crate of celery roots out, and the, the young prep cook literally just took a knife and made a square out of the heart of the <laughs> celery root and threw everything else away. Okay, now you're talking about extreme. Yeah, of yeah. course. That's, that's stupid. Because he wanted perfect little cubes. <laughs> of course he did. You yeah. start, if you want a perfect little cube, you start with a big one. Tom Colicchio <laughs> was the chef. Yeah, Tom Colicchio was the chef at that time. Of yeah. course, it's a big round. That's why it's yeah. funny. Anyway, okay, now we've, we've peeled it. It's very white. It's at this very point. white, and it oxidized, meaning that if you leave it on the counter for an hour or two, it will start to darken a little bit. Tarnish a little yeah, bit. Tarnish. Yeah, tarnish. So you want to use it. Fairly. I personally don't have a problem with that. I, it's like, I, that's why apple juice is brown, right? It starts clear and it turns brown. It's correct. oxidized. Correct. doesn't make it bad. I didn't say anything about bad. I, I, just, I know you didn't. I know. I was just, I was just describing saying. not to panic if it yeah. turns slightly golden brown. It's okay. But two ways to use it. For me, it's either you cook it. Uh, so when you cook celery root... In the old days, when I started uh, apprenticeship, you were all make, always making what's called a blanc, which is a white, which is a little bit of flour and a lot of water. And that would keep, that starch would keep anything like salsify, celery root, anything you would boil um, of that root vegetable section, it would keep them really white. Um, I don't do that anymore. I've stopped doing that a long time yeah. ago. And uh, just a little lemon juice if you want to keep it white. And that's plenty. It's just like an artichoke idea, but... Um, so anyway, you can boil the celery root, you can roast the celery root, or you can have it raw, yeah. julienne. 
And all three are very different, and they're super delicious, different flavor. But, you know, a good, right now, a good celery root, leeks, and potato soup is such a delicious thing to do. You know, it's like sweat your onions, add your celery root, uh, add your leeks, sweat that, add your cubes of, of celery root, put a little bit of vegetable stock or, or um, chicken stock, cook that down a little bit till it, everything is totally smush and tender, and then add a little bit of creme fraiche, blend the whole thing up, and you get this wonderful soup. So you said celery root and potato, but you only added celery root in oh. that. So you meant to add some of both, Correct, right? potatoes okay. as well, right. cubed potato. My favorite is celery root remoulade. Mm. So a classic kind of Creole Love remoulade, that. which is a mayo base with uh, Tabasco and uh, whole seed mustard and lots of lemon juice and zest and lots of parsley. And, and uh, I love, I just take on the mandolin, just take and make nice thin shreds of the celery root. Uh, it's it's uh, crispy and delicious and unctuous. And yeah. I, I just love that salad. And that's classic in my mind with a nice little slab of pate or... Uh, you can use it on anything. I like, I've put it on fried green tomato sandwiches with celery mm. root remoulade or you know, th- things of that nature. I love yeah. that. Celery flavor. root remoulade. And texture. It's a good texture. Every time I think of celery root in salad style, like remoulade or mayonnaise or whatever, mm-hmm. first thing I think about is Dungeness crab meat. Yeah, perfect. Oh, right yeah. on top, a whole bunch of it. Ooh, delicious. I want that. Yeah, uh-huh. me too. Forget your eggs, Benedict. Let's move on. Celery root and... Crab right uh-huh. now for breakfast. So now as an <laughs> accent flavor, it works also, right? So let's say you're making mashed potatoes for Thanksgiving, uh, and you just have a big pile of mashed potatoes. But if you were to add, say, make it down to 50% potatoes, 20% parsnips, yep. 20% celery root, 10% maybe a turnip. Yep. The reason I don't love turnips in it is they're too watery sometimes. Yeah. But uh, then you have a root vegetable mash, and it, or you could even leave out the turnips and put in sweet potatoes, and you have a little yeah. color in your mashed potato then. Too. Or you could just do potato and celery root. It's a good yeah. match. It matches really well because the celery root will have a little bit of that celery flavor coming through the potato and the starch of, and the richness of that potato, especially if you use like yellowfin potato instead of russet. You get that extra lunctuousness, you know. Right. Mm. Tomorrow night, I'm doing a benefit for uh, benefit dinner for Fair Start, uh-huh. and we're doing a celery root gratin. Mm. And so, but uh, in my gratins, you're I doing make, a gratin. I am. Can you imagine <laughs> that? He's always mocking me in my gratin. Oh. He makes everything. You're, you know what is funny? Goes, seems like you want you want eggs Benedict? Let's always... have an eggs Benedict gratin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, one of the ways that we do it. To, I think make it a little bit uh, better for me. I love when you make gratin. I like all the brown areas, right? Oh, sure. And so we do them in cookie sheet pans that have maybe a half inch rim on them, and then so you can spread it out. And we just do a much wider square. We right. cut them into like a four by four, or six the, by six. Put the meat on top. Yeah, you put the meat on top, yeah. right? And then just you get the kind of broiled glaze sure. on the gratin. More crust is better. Yeah. I think it's uh, so often you get a gratin and it's like an inch or an inch and a half thick. Yeah, and it, to me it's a little bit like eating a rare steak, like a rare filet mignon, or roast beef. Yeah. You get the delicious crust on the outside, and then it's all raw meat on the inside, and that's exactly. a little bit how I feel like uh, with a gratin that's stacked too tall. Yeah, and uh, if you do a celery root, I used to do a celery root and carrot gratin, mm-hmm. which was it was really nice. And let me it guess, all, it was delicious. It was no, it was really good. <laughs> it was really good. <laughs> 
delicious. <laughs> yes, it was delicious. Yeah. It was um, my favorite thing to add to that is a little bit of grated nutmeg mm-hmm. and salt. That's it. Grated nutmeg and salt. And why do you say that's it? Because I don't I think want to. People often put too much stuff in. Right? Yeah, I yeah. think I think that. You know, there are certain things where you put seasoning. Like if you're doing a rub, obviously you're doing more spices, more mixture. You're trying to get a crust on the outside and the flavor, sometimes to cure or marinate with. But in the case of celery root, to me, it's one of those vegetables that it gives nicely, but don't overpower. I mean, don't come with cinnamon and all that stuff because it's going to overpower it. And you're going to lose the beautiful thing about the celery root itself. It's the fragrance. Yeah. Right? It's got a beautiful fragrance. Yeah, don't mess with the good stuff. If you think about celery itself being kind of a thin, watery fragrance, unless you're eating the leaves, right. uh, celery root is an earthy version of that. Correct. In my mind, it's got a different kind but of... But it also has a delicateness. I think celery root is delicate in, in terms of the flavor itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not as pungent as lovage or, or like, like you just said, celery. Mm-hmm. Celery is more, to me, it's more abrupt. Mm-hmm. But celery root is delicate. You know, it's a beautiful root. No, I mean, it's a beautiful, I think it's a gorgeous, it's easy to grow, by the way, just needs water. All right, listeners, I want, uh, when I go to the grocery store next and I go to buy celery root, I want it to be out of stock because you've all listened and you've all gone to your store and you're out there trying it out. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not a big trial. Please do try it. It's, it's and we're not being paid by the Celery, the <laughs> celery Act Commission. Commission. <laughs> Is there such a thing? I don't think so. Not yet. Not until it becomes wildly popular. Until we get a phone call. Up next, many cities, including Seattle, are looking at restricting permits for gas lines in new construction. Why are they doing that? When we come back on Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show. Hey, you're back in the kitchen here at the Hot Stove. If you've never been to a class here, you're missing out on one of the fabulous culinary instructors here in Seattle and Chef Bridget Charters. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Many, 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 many years now. Many of the young. Not that many. Many of the young cooks around Seattle. Yes, she is that old. Uh, Many of the young cooks around Seattle have been in her classes over the years down at the Art Institute. some of the young cooks over at uh, Inglewood High School have been in her classes. Uh, anyway, uh, Bridget is an instructor here at the Hot Stove and also does a lot of work with the Food and Wine Festival organization, both in Aspen, in South Beach, down in Miami. You just came back from there, right? Correct, yeah. What was the most exciting thing you saw in South Beach? The sun. <laughs> Actually, the way it's, you're right, Katie. The weather was awesome. Usually we get rain squalls that come through and the whole time it was 80 degrees yeah. light mm. breeze it mm. felt so good i've cooked at that event a few I'm times i'm still not moving to florida it literally is on the beach the tents are on the beach and it, it is multi-thousands of people yeah and jose was there he showed up and did no the way jose Andres, yeah. yeah he came yeah. back he uh no. yeah he came uh, rachel ray uh called in sick she got covid and uh, so anyway, he jumped in on the Burger Bash and was going to jump in on a demo last minute. Um, Morimoto dropped out. I don't know if he had COVID, too. But anyway. Uh, oh, he's still sore from 15 years ago when we took him <laughs> exactly. down at Iron Chef. Exactly. He heard I was going to be there. He didn't want to show Yeah, face. exactly. He heard Tom was coming. He's like, okay, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. Yeah, that's it. Uh, no. So anyway, Jose the next day had to cancel his demo because he lost his voice. Uh. And then he flew out the day after that to Ukraine. Ukraine, yeah. Yeah. 
dude's on the move. I think I saw him on CNN in Poland. Or if I'm yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's where he landed and then headed across. Let's talk about, uh, I know on those stages when I do these events around the country, uh, those stages are often uh, buttressed with uh, convection burners compared to what we're used to cooking on here. And, and there's been years and years of chefs saying, gas is so much better, gas is so much better, and you know that sort of thing. And now we're starting to see where induction is becoming a little bit more the norm and also the law, which is uh, crazy, isn't it, to think? Yeah. Tell us about induction. I, you know, Chef Teddy could probably tell us more because it came it came about I think around the time of sous vide, right back mm-hmm. in the seventies. Back in the seventies, and um, but and those were not as good. I mean, they're not as refined. The progress that they have made is tremendous, and it's amazing. Quite quite cool. I mean, I think that a, a dream stove is a is a glass top where you have to pay attention to what you're doing, and to have an induction. Um, Cooking, yeah. I mean, I'm all. I think I'm all for it in terms of the vote of that. Compared to the problem with gas, to me, is the pollution of it. It's which is probably the same reason they want to get rid of it. Uh-huh. But I think the pollution of it is quite tremendous, uh, and we don't realize it when we're cooking. But I can tell you that uh, when I, once I got sick a year ago or so, you know, and pneumonia. I, yeah, yeah, and then uh, you know I got scanned on my lungs and everything. They were like. Uh, so what do you do for a living? Oh, no <laughs> I was like, because of the gas? Well, I know, but I'm the one who was going with that deduction. They go, we don't have any proof of that or whatever, obviously. But they, you know, to me, I'm convinced with all the 45, 50 years I've been in the kitchen, it's gotta is, have an effect. there is definitely an unhealthy side to that part of cooking. I mean, how many times have you cooked on a stove that had burning stuff around it and, you know, carbon, whatever, all that stuff, all those fumes. Yeah, you have a hood, but it's got to go up and it's got to go through your nose before it goes into the hood. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's so, true. So all those fats that we have burned, all those pans that were too hot, all those, you right. know, all those different things that you do, and you're going to say, yeah, you can get a pot too hot on the, on the induction, yes. But you can't have something on a glass top that falls off and you not go sweep it right away, and there is no burning into that. Correct. So, right. And the easiness, by the way, of cleaning a glass stove versus a cast iron stove is a lot easier. <laughs> so, right. let's talk about that for a second. It's glass, but the, some of the inductions that I've worked on, it's actually cool to the touch, but it gets hot with the certain metal of the pan interaction with what's inside under the glass, right? Correct. So, you can put a dollar bill between the plate and the pan. And it basically just irons the dollar bill. It never burns. It never colors. It's magnetic. So it's that transfer of energy through the metal of the pan. So literally, if you put a piece of paper on the induction, we've got some here. I'll show you, Pam. It's amazing. So, yes, it's handy. The thing about it is is you've got to maintain contact. Right. Right. And you have to have a certain type of pan, right? A certain thickness. Correct. uh, Right. And so when you, uh, you know, I heard you say, oh, you got to get new pans. Well, you do, especially if you want a saute pan, your cast iron will work. We got into this in South Beach because a number of chefs wanted to use a grill pan. Mm-hmm. And oh, we yeah. were all like, rut row. Cast iron grill. Right. And so, you know, how are you going to find a cast iron grill pan that has a completely smooth bottom? Because they fracture. They're, they're fragile that way. But if you have... 
you know, they don't have a completely flat bottom. They've got some shape and a frame to them. Mm -hmm. And so they'll work and they'll transfer heat. They've got to stay on there longer. You know, and, and uh, you've done a million demos on on these, and you've watched chefs uh, of other all ilks, whether Correct. you're cooking Asian or cooking with Jose or whoever you're cooking with. We only have a couple of minutes. What's the what's the technique difference, right? When I've done it, I have you have to kind of, in my mind, pull your pan to the side a little bit. But the like when you want to turn it up or turn it down, it's instant. It's, yeah, yeah. The the heat transfer is instant. What you have to be is calm. So when Pam mentioned Eric Repair was saying that he liked it, you literally need to be a pastry chef and just be super uber calm and you can't touch the pan because if you slide it off the heat, beep, it beeps at you and it turns off. Okay. (laughs) So it's super frustrating. Yes, you can get it to go up and down and it's immediate, Uh but psychologically we chefs are so used to kind of looking at the pan moving it around you don't touch don't touch right because otherwise it'll beep and goes off and we went through this in south yeah. beach which isn't necessary well then you have to turn it back on right and yeah. then, so, so somebody's got to be there and there, the chef's yeah. trying to do the demo and the, the thing's going beep beep yeah beep beep, beep. <laughs> janet was there janet's looking at me and i'm like i can't take it i gotta go and i left you know i was like deal with it you know because there's nothing you can do so she had to hop up there during the demo you uh-huh. know and like hit the button get it restarted yeah correct and, and but it, was- it does if you have let's say you have a pot that's just about to boil over like of cream or pasta water or something right you can just pull it to the side and slide it right off it's it clicks off. right yeah. off yeah heat's gone the heat is gone yeah i mean it's literally the minute you slide it off so to finish uh are you if the city council comes down the pike and does this uh bans new gas lines in the buildings uh are you for or against it you know, I'm for it. Like Terry said, I mean, it's it's a whole nother set of infrastructure to get the piping for gas into these high-rise buildings. Think of all that metal and all that infra- infrastructure to get gas into the building. They already have electricity in the building. Boom. But if everyone moves to induction, that's a lot more electricity. Just it's a lot right. more electricity. And producing electricity is not exactly the cleanest way also. So, Correct. You know, we need to get into the... Uh, New energy and figuring out how to, uh, but that's another subject. But yeah, yes. I mean, imagine a place like Florida; they have no yeah. hydroelectric. Right, and like here, where there's earthquakes, we don't want to have gas lines rupturing. Uh, up, we have another full hour going on here. Thank you, Bridget, for that. Are you going to play no trivia problem. with us? Oh man, I'm ready. It's been a while since we've wow. played but Yeah, it's been a while. I'm looking forward to it. When we come back on Cairo Radio, it's uh, Women's History Month. Okay, Chef. Pay tribute to some female chefs. Welcome back. Chef Charters is going to stay with us apparently for this next segment. Pamela, tell us uh, tell us about this segment here that you have crafted crafted into the show. It's Women's History Month. Uh huh. And I wanted to look back to how the culinary scene in the United States has changed from this beautiful cookbook, the Women's Exchange Cookbook from 1894, which describes what the role of women was in the culinary world. It was focused on feeding our families. Right. 
In offering the woman's exchange cookbook to the mothers, housekeepers, and cooks over the land, we do so feeling it will prove a lasting good to each and all of our women. So we have now, with the help of many influential and important women, come to this modern version where there are strong, talented, flavorful women who have changed the whole scene mm-hmm. and gotten women out of the home kitchens and leading trends and causes. And I want us to talk about and, those. And leading brigades in commercial and kitchens. Bri- yeah, exactly. exactly. So, so um, I think Terry said in the break, he remembers the male-dominated time in the professional kitchens Absolutely. when the women I mean, were I only the from, dishwashers. Yeah, when I come from where I was apprenticed, there was definitely no woman uh, in the restaurant, there was only one woman, and she was the dishwasher. Yeah. There was no cooks, you know, that were um, female whatsoever. And that was not even, I'm sure then those guys back then didn't even think of that. You know, they didn't even think of that time. That doesn't mean there was no woman chef. I mean, the perfect example in France and the contrast of that is if you go to Lyon, there's a place called La Mer Brasier, who was the mother institution of where all those big chefs and, you know, names of classic Paul Bocuse, Loiseau, all those guys went and learned from La Mer Brasier. So there was obviously a woman at the start, like in every story, right? It starts with a woman, mm-hmm. always. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and to say that there was no woman chef back then is not necessarily 100% true, but there's definitely been a resurgence and a, a welcome resurgence to balance out in the kitchen, restaurant kitchen, where, you know, female have taken... In a lot of kitchens, they've taken over, and I love working with um, any woman chef I work with. I've never had any issues. I love the balance it brings to the kitchen compared to the machoism that men most often have. Bridget, why don't you uh, take a a rip at uh, relating that to Seattle kitchens, because you've been around Seattle for what, in the professional ranks for 30-some years? Yeah, So, um, And we've all seen what happened uh, in the early, in the... 80s at uh, the Sheraton Hotel with oh my God. Kathy and uh, uh, Monique Barbeau and I'm Danielle to... Custer. Danielle Custer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they went all in on women chefs there and literally for years, uh, different women chefs. But anyway, so tell us a little bit about the Seattle scene and how that changed. Capriol Pence. I was down in San Francisco and my family's up here. I was contemplating moving back up here, ended up getting a job working in Italy. But then I came early 90s, was checking it out. And my dad was sending me the articles about Louis Richmond. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Remember him? Public relations. Oh, yeah. 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 And that he still was runs his... by Seatown every day. Does he really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And so he had this whole spin, like my dad contacted him and wanted to get me up here and working in the restaurants and... Anyway, it was amazing because it was Kathy Casey. They did this whole huge campaign with Kathy Casey and Monique Barbeau with the Sheridan Hotel, and it just blew up. And then it was the – what's the one up on Capitol Hill, the hotel on Capitol Hill? Sorrento. The Sorrento. They had the budgets to do all of that. Yeah, so it was Barbara Figueroa. And all of a sudden, all these female chefs. It was the Seattle thing. I mean, there were female chefs around. I mean, I can name them, the ones that were in San Francisco and in the Bay Area, the ones down in L.A., you know. And so when I was in culinary school in the early 80s – you know, I like Terry. I mean, every kitchen was all guys. So, like, as a female chef, I I feel like what we've noticed uh, over the years is that 
the lifespan of a female chef in the kitchen is a little shorter. Is that all got to do with having kids or or anything of that nature? Or is why do you suppose that is? Because we're smart. Because you're smart. <laughs> <laughs> Bravo. Bravo to that. You know what? I will go. I will go with that one hundred percent. If only I could have been smarter and stopped earlier. Yeah, I mean, it's just, and it's because you know, it's it's intense and it's, it's an super hard. Profession. And, yes. Yeah, I mean, I worked the line for a long time, and then I was like, okay, wow, this is intense. Uh-huh. You know, and it's just you have to make decisions. You have to make decisions. Do you want to have kids? Do you want to get married? And you know, it's kind of like sailboat racing. You know, the minute you have kids, it's like, oh, okay. But it's done. funny because it you know. seems like men can be monochromatic, but women are not allowed to. Well, but I was going <laughs> to open a restaurant with Ted first, and I found out I was pregnant with Spencer. Mm-hmm. Bang. Yeah. That was it. Game over. And Ted, that was one of the things Ted and I put out there was like, hey, if kids are involved, and he's like, are you planning on having kids? And I said, oh, no, later down the road, <laughs> blah, blah, you know. And Ted's like, I lost a marriage. You know, I have two beautiful girls, and I didn't see them grow up. I have no idea. Oh, his they, first wife, Margie, is so sweet. Yeah, yeah, and he just was never there, and they just, it fractured, you know. And so you have to make decisions about your life and your family and the whole night. This yards. is definitely a case of many in the restaurant industry of people who have not been able to keep their marriage together because of one person never been home, you know, and and, and you're not home nights and you're not home weekends right. too. I mean, the more right. traditional social time, unless yeah, unless it's a unit like you and Jackie and you guys. I mean, the child right was with you. She's a restaurant baby, yeah, yeah, and so that's the thing is that you're. You've got to make decisions that way. A lot of Asian families, it's you see the whole family, you see the kids in the corner. When I go down to the I district, there's you know yeah. younger families yeah. and the kids are in the corner doing their schoolwork. You and know? there's there's certain cultures where women do dominate the kitchen. Like if you right. go uh, any most any Thai restaurant in the city, it's got a female chef in the back there, or Vietnamese restaurants oftentimes. Uh, there's there's just uh, it's culturally. Uh, it is was inappropriate, say in your era in France, but mm-hmm. it was not the case in other parts of the world. Yeah, but right. in the in the mid '90s too. I mean, what was in vogue? You know, ethnic restaurants were not in vogue. Those were places you went, you know, for the heck of it, but they weren't considered fine dining. Like where and Caucasian could- chefs like myself were trying to replicate what they were doing, not unlike Caucasian musicians uh, replicating. The Motown sound and a lot of the, the black music that right. was coming out, right? Right, so, right. And right or wrong, that's what we were doing. Yeah, remember the whole Pacific Rim thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I Hello. Was I mean, it was yeah. amazing. All those chefs, male and female, in the Pacific Northwest, involved with the development. Of the, well, that was not happening in San but Francisco. But you might also say that that actually opened the door to get the respect that we have now for those cuisines. Correct. Because we exposed... Some of our customers Absolutely. to that. 100%. But, but never under, understanding really the cultural appropriation that we were kind of being part of. Right. Uh, so it's, it's interesting how it all kind of comes around. Right. Okay, before we go, name your number one um, female chef. And not, not, a rest, not like Julia, but, but for me it's Alice Waters. Well, I, gonna... I was, and she had male chefs under her all the time who claimed to have done all the work. But I love how she kept Chez Panisse on the the road I'm going to have to mention Sophie Peake in France, who took after the, the, you know, the family business and kept three-star restaurant going. Which one? Uh, Sophie Peake, Peake oh. in Valence. Okay. 
And I mean, maintaining a three-star Michelin restaurant is not yeah, exactly just like Maggie Lacoste did here. Yeah, I mean, and you know, and Maggie at the, at Le Bernardin, but uh, that's a that's a strong fit. You know, on the West Coast, I'd have to say the two hot tamales, mm-hmm. Mary Sue and Susan. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. then on the East Coast, uh, Lindsay Shire. Lydia Shire. Lydia, Lydia Shire. Up there. At, uh, man, she like, oh man, she was in the trenches the yeah. whole time. Oh, yeah. She was. yeah, yeah. And Susan, her sous chef, was awesome too. Yeah. yeah. When we come back, Bless Roasting Marabones. Thanks you so much on Cairo Radio, the Hot Stove Society Show. All right, we're going to roast some bones here at the Hot Stove Society on Cairo Radio. I'm Tom Douglas. And I'm Terry Rotero, the chef in the hat. Uh, and chef, you know, this is, uh, I call them pub bones because uh, you find them in lots of restaurants now, especially, oddly enough, restaurants that don't have a lot of other things on the menu. They're kind of like this little uh, fun treat. Sure. It feels exotic, but it doesn't take a lot of effort, right? Right. You get a femur bone and you slice it lengthwise. and you Or you buy a, them sliced. Or you, you, know, you definitely have to buy them sliced. Yeah. Most people don't have a bandsaw in their, Correct. in their kitchen. But tell us about how this kind of became popular because I think of it being an old world like a European type thing to begin with. Uh, it was never, I was never exposed to it till maybe 30 years ago or right, so right. in our cuisine. Tell us about. Well, when I was a kid, the bones were not used that way either. We were taking the marrow out of the bone and we were using the marrow differently. Like, for example, if you're making a bean stew, uh, instead of finishing it with a pound of butter, you just use some bone marrow, then you pan sear and then put everything into the bean stew. And you just instantly flavor your bean stew right. really nicely. Because it's all fat, really, right? It's all fat. Yeah. And so are you saying that your mom would go to the butcher shop and buy the marrow or Correct. buy the marrow bone and scoop it out? We would buy the marrow bone okay. by itself. And you could buy the bone also on the side, or you could buy both of them together. But in general, you buy the marrow on the side. And the butcher, you know, it, you don't have much. Marrow is not like, uh, like the top round. You know, It's not like it comes in millions of pounds out, yeah. out of a beef. It's not that much marrow. So it's a very specific item that the butcher would have, hey, uh, I got some marrows. Do you want some? Ah, yes. You know, yeah. So uh-huh. it's like the little treat. But you buy the marrow and you would do, uh, to me, the most common one is the pan seared, pan seared the marrow, season the marrow, pan sear it, and then put it into something like a stew, like I was saying, a bean stew. Or, or into, I saw lots of recipes for tarts and things like that too. Well, that's yeah. that. That's more the Lyon area of France, where I'm from, not quite so much that way. But, um, you know, in many restaurants, like in the Lyon area, they do serve the bone, like you see it nowadays, on the half, um, half-cut bone and then baked uh, under the salamander. So quite, is it baked? Oh, so it's broiled. Yeah, broiled. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, not baked. Broiled. broiled uh, seasoned and broiled. And that very simply done, it comes with salt. a nice little... Uh, no, sea salt is usually on the side. You know, they give it to you to just season your own. Mm-hmm. And it can come with uh, Julian pickle, like cornichon. You know, Julian cornichon. Just to match that uh, rich heaviness and fatness. Uh-huh. And sea salt. You know, and very simply. And then you, you get that it has to be hot. I mean, there's nothing grosser than a bone marrow bone that comes to you and it's not hot. A little bit raw. Disgusting, as a matter so of fact. So let's talk about that for a second. Because, like, when you're making foie, which is... I would equate to similar fat levels as marrow, where like, but you can overcook foie, right? And you literally, you cook, the fat just drips right out of it. You end up with a sponge of cellulose because you've drained all the fat out of the foie when you cook it. With beef bones, 
you think of them of always being well done, well cooked. You just said you had Correct. to do it that way. How do you keep it so that all that fat doesn't render right out of the marrow? Well, you keep it in the bone. I, I know that. <laughs> and that's why they do it like that, so, so you don't end up just with a little bit of a jelly kind of yeah. piece of meat. You end up with all the fat around it. When you're eating a bone marrow, a, a, a roasted bone marrow, you're actually eating fat, melted fat. Right. And a little bit of consistency in the middle. But that, in general, if it's baked all the way, there is very little left. Just like you said with foie gras, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. It shrinks down to, you know, one-third of the size of what you started with. Foie gras is actually more consistency meat than bone marrow has. Yeah, it is. You yeah. know, uh, bone marrow is also a great thing to mix. Um, I did that at Rovers a couple of times, is to take bone marrow, mix it with butter, like blend it cold with butter, and then season it with fresh herbs, you know, chives and thyme, and then fin- use that as a finished product on um, those little singing scallops. Mm-hmm. I used to do the singing scallop and put a little spoon of that and then bake the si- singing scallop. Mm-hmm. It wasn't singing after that, was it? it wasn't, <laughs> I was singing. The scallop was being eaten. Okay, so if somebody wants, let's start from the beginning so that if somebody wants to try, because you only really see these things in restaurants. Right. Uh, you go to your butcher shop, you ask for what? I would ask for the piece of bone that's cut lengthwise. The femur, right? Yeah, yeah. the femur. So, and, 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 and it's uh, beef, how by the big, way. How big do you think this is? Well, it's, it's about. Do you like to get the whole one? Yeah, yeah. Or do yeah, you like yeah. to get chunks? No, I like to get the whole, or you could have those cut in half, but mm-hmm. it's better if you take the whole thing. I mean, if it's too big for you, you can share it with someone else. But in general, it's, it, by the way, it's quite rich. You know, you're eating fat. So. And people generally eat it as kind of an appetizer. It's not yeah. really an entree. Right. Yeah. But, so you can share it with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Very important to have some nice little garlic bread, like country bread, toasted garlic. And uh, you don't really need to put butter, but with butter, it's always better. So. <laughs> or olive oil. But you don't need a lot because you're putting fat on. You're putting fat on it, right? So yeah. you don't need a lot. Okay, let's go back one more time. We've got our, we've been to the butcher. We've got our bone. It's sliced lengthwise so that you have a strip of marrow exposed. Correct. You're going to put that on a sheet pan or in a definitely on pan a sheet pan because it's going to drip a little bit. Correct. And you want to get it up tight under the broiler. Right. And if your bone is not standing correctly flat, because you don't want to. Have your bone sideways because otherwise all the fat's going to run on your pan. Right. So put a little bit of salt underneath your bone so your bone is actually sturdy. Rock salt. Yeah. Yeah. Rock salt or even salt, whatever you have for salt. Put that under the bone so the bone doesn't move. The on same the thing pan. you might do to an oyster on the half shell that you want to broil, right? You have to get it to a place that it'll sit level. Find a base so then it's stable yeah. and flat. So I use egg cartons for my oysters. Oh yeah, very yeah, smart. They, they work. They work beautifully, but yeah, I don't. Yeah. I think that. Under a beef bone, they would start to burn up. Yeah, it, they would it takes, burn. It takes much longer. Correct. Yeah. And uh, um, so... It, okay, so now, now we want to pull them off and only, do what? Only pepper. I put ground pepper on top of my marrow. That's wrong. And salt, right? No, you still no, like put the salt, the salt on the salt side. Afterward. Yeah. And then uh, if you want to do garlic or if you want to do kind of flavoring like this, make sure it's fine chopped. Really fine chopped because that's not going to take very long to cook, by the way. It doesn't take long to bake a, uh, a beef bone. You know, it's fat, so it's... And the bone retains the heat, so it literally is Correct. nice on the table for a bit. To, yeah. It stays warm. But again, make sure it's hot when you serve it, because it's really disgusting when it's cold. Uh, <laughs> okay, so now we've pulled it out. We've served it. We have cornichon. We've got a yeah, little uh, flake. Uh, sea salt. And that's it. 
or chives. You could have chopped chives uh-huh. to finish uh-huh. at the end. Uh-huh. So it's a fun little appetizer, and then don't forget your, your garlic bread. Does this work on any other animal bones? Have you tried it? No, a uh, lamb. I've done lamb, but lamb is really Certainly small. veal would work. But it's, yeah. yeah, veal would work for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, usually it's beef bone because that's what's in the market. That's the most common one too. Mm-hmm. And if you just don't want to eat it, you can just slowly put it in the oven and render that fat and use that fat for searing your steak or for cooking as a side. I mean... So can you, what do you do with the bones afterwards? Because it seems a shame. They're, they're not cheap. No, they no. used to be like a butcher throwaway. Correct. Or, Here's one for your dog. And I now make a like stock. this. So you make a stock, right? Yeah, I put that in a stock. Absolutely. I just actually put them back in the oven, keep roasting them. And, you know, when you make a stock, the flavor comes from the actual marrow. Because you don't actually take the marrow out of the bones when you do a stock. Right. But now that you've taken the marrow out, you've taken a lot of the, lot of the flavor. But I still roast them because I don't want to throw them away. I still roast them and make a stock with it. And it's a light flavor beef stock. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, even though it's browned bones and vegetables, it's still um, it's a very light flavor brown stock. But it's still a good stock. Mm-hmm. You can use that. And, you know, then you can grind it and put it in your garden. <laughs> Get They're like right, looking right at me, that, looking at me like, no way, this is gonna happen. Uh-huh. But if you had, if you could grind those bones, this is good calcium for your, for your garden. Mm-hmm. Just saying. I just want to eat it so I can collect the beautiful old-fashioned marrow spoons. I know exactly. That's what, that's, I'm just <laughs> into it for the Sterling spoons. Sterling silver, yeah. <laughs> Sterling silver. Exactly. And the recipe I was looking at had a beautiful coarse uh, parsley salad on the side, mm. which I think would be the Perfect. excellent counterpoint. Better yeah. with the fat. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is, and I think most dog owners know this, you can't give your dog those bones once they're cooked, right? Because they want a splinter. Well, I don't know, but I would. No. No, I know you would not, but I said, that's because I don't have a dog, so I would. Well, <laughs> and same way, you don't give them uh, cooked chicken bones either, right? Like, they can actually you eat know, and chew. I'm going to tell you something about this. This is a... I'm not, this, I'm not a dog guy. My version of all this is, maybe you have a city dog, because when I grew up maybe on the you farm... you have a city dog. There is nothing. <laughs> because when I grew up on the farm, there was nothing that dog would not eat. I mean, and we definitely didn't have a menu for him either. Mm-hmm. It was not like we went to the store and buy some. No, you eat what we eat. And most yeah, importantly, we don't go to the store either. It actually comes delivered by FedEx <laughs> in frozen raw packages that That's we right. peel and eat. Back in 1965 in a small village in France, FedEx did not come. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was none of that. <laughs> I think we have a city dog that lives on our farm then. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I'm saying. Um, the wild, wild world of breadsticks. Uh, Pamela is going to give some to our audience here, and uh, you're going to look for them in the store. I've got a few favorite brands. On Cairo, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. It's time to explore the wide, wide world of breadsticks here at the Hot Stove Society Show. <laughs> Maybe I'll just choke on one in the time being. I've got a mouthful of Mastro Cesare Antica Forno Piedmontese Rustic Green Olive Grissini, or breadsticks. They're artisan breadsticks, olive oil and sea salt with a little bit of flecks of green olive in them. Pamela, you have uh, you often come in with a little treat, a little surprise. Where did you find these? Because I have not seen these in my grocery store. 
this wonderful store, Agora, up on 15th on Capitol Hill, who has a treasure trove of Mediterranean specialties. I went up there to get the chocolate sauce we need for our dinner tomorrow, Uh and they were out. They were out of the chocolate sauce? Yeah. Oh, no. But I ended up going to... So we're going to Nutella instead? No. (laughs) I found an even better one that is actually from Italy at Chef Shop Uh from an Italian chocolate manufacturer in Piedmont who gets the hazelnuts there. So we are hooked up. So where's the one that we loved that we tasted on Christmas Eve? It was sold out. It's coming back. But where is that from? France. Oh, that was a French one. Well, the the you yeah. I much they, prefer the Italian one. See, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just just to show your palate. <laughs> um, let's talk breadsticks. Uh, there are um, Alessi is the brand that I buy at the grocery oh, store, yeah. and they have. Uh, you know, do you remember being charmed? But when you used to go to Italian restaurants, like the Pink Door in the very beginning and stuff, and you'd sit down, and their bread service would be like this little plastic bag full of uh, maybe eight or ten little tiny thin breadsticks so you open it up and you just chow away on those breadsticks and yep. uh, i still buy those so they're, they're under the brand name alessi you can get them at most grocery stores and they have a couple of different ones uh, i like the rosemary garlic versions which are the ones the tiny ones in the separate bag right but they also make like a big sesame seed coated uh, ah, almost like a cigar size uh, breadstick that is really good i love just slathering salted butter on them and uh, really tasty but breadsticks are a kind of a lost art don't you think yeah i want them more that's uh, i've been trying to make them out of pizza dough uh for fresh lunches that would but, work fine right mm-hmm. oh yeah why why do you say trying yeah I, I i don't think i'm getting them uh rolled out thin enough to get the texture that i'm looking for the okay. crunch they end up being a little doughy. Remember the ones we used to have at Red Hook? Those thick ones? Mm-hmm. They, they end up more like that chewy, spongy. But I want more crispness. So for us, when we make breadsticks here for a hot stove, we take a bowl of pizza dough from Serious Pie, and then we literally, I kind of beat it down into a little bit of a patty, and then I take a pizza cutter and I slice a really thin slice off the bowl, and then I take it, and then I work it with my hands on the counter where you kind of rub your hands back and forth and push to the outside so you lengthen that strand of dough. Um, And now with our new pizza spice uh, in in the line, you simply just brush maybe a little egg wash over top of that and put on your spice or your sesame seeds or rosemary or rosemary, whatever it is that you want to flavor them with. Uh, It's good to roll some of that stuff in there too, uh, but... um, that is a delicious way to do it. And if you want them to be more crunchy, you simply cook them at lower temperature. Longer. The, longer at lower temperature. And typically, they're not real brown when you pull them out. Typically, right. they're, they're more of a blonde breadstick, and they are a delicious, And the skinnier makes the driest, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, the bigger the, the, the roll, the, you, know, you have more chance to get it chewy on the inside. I think that's uh, why I want to perfect it, because most of the grocery stores now have... Pizza dough, or you could get serious pie dough now. Right. Yeah. I mean, most of the grocery stores do have yeah. pizza dough. And so making them at home fresh for your guests. There's other ways. There's cheater ways of making breadsticks, right? So there's a pastry brand in the freezer at your grocery store called Dufour. Oh, yeah. Right? Which yeah. is a puff pastry. Right. I real, love those. Real buttery. That's the way and, we used to make uh, allumette, call it allumette au fromage, which is 
basically thin layers of puff pastry, put a little cheese on it, like Gruyere. Roll it, twist. roll it and twist, yeah. and then bake it. Those are know. cheese sticks. Yeah, yeah. That's what I, that's, you just gave away what I was going to do. So <laughs> tell Except people. I, I said it better. Yes, you did. <laughs> Alumet. I thought it was a city in Indiana. Alumet, Alumet means. That's Calumet. Alumet. That's Calumet. That's in Illinois. And that's um, also a baking powder. Yes, mm-hmm. but it's uh, um, Alumet of fromage is, uh, the word Alumet means matchstick. So you take that uh, puff pastry, you kind of roll it out. Again, you could use your pizza cutter or a knife. Yeah. Yeah. You probably want it to be about a half inch wide. Yeah. And then what do you use to get whatever the ingredients, like the cheese or the sm- I like to put smoked paprika on there. I like to do egg I wash. Twist. Egg so wash. you do egg wash, right? Same and thing. And then I do a little salt, and then I put Parmesan cheese, I mean uh, uh, Gruyere, usually very fine uh, uh-huh. shaved Gruyere, and then twist the whole together and then put that on a baking sheet and then go for it 350 degrees in five minutes you've got gorgeous little alumetto fromage and uh so a cheese stick and you would serve those how just by themselves with a yeah, cocktail usually served by themselves Great with a lucatini yeah i mean i would serve that with a cocktail for sure mm-hmm. not with anything there is no dipping sauce there is no nothing like that with those alumetto fromage it's just it the flavor is the cheese on the piece of Mm-hmm. No, basically. Mm-hmm. Just kind of like the gougere. You know, when you do gougere, it's the same thing. You're doing a, a dough with some cheese. You know, it's so the same In basic. my mind, the number one mistake people make when they make something like that is that they don't cook them long enough. They don't oh, get yeah. any brown or yeah. any caramelization Big mistake. on the cheese. Bake it all the way. Make sure it's brown. And we're not talking white brown. We're talking dark brown. French brown. Yeah. I mean, really baked all the way. And you'll have something that will be crispy, that will stay on the counter for... Quite a few hours, so you can do this, you know, by two o'clock in the afternoon for six o'clock arrival of your guest. It's perfectly fine. You can also flash it in the oven for just barely a minute in the oven at 300 degrees. Gives it a little perkiness just before you serve them. And then give it to your guest as you give them a cocktail. A martini and a cheese um, stick is fabulous. Hmm. (laughs) Let's go back to bread sticks for a second. Uh, for some reason, I can't remember the bakery that I was in that makes the breadsticks that are soft, but they're just full of olives. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Anybody? Well, Princey used to do that beautiful. Oh, Princey made it. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly the one I'm talking about. Yeah. That, that was, I'm so sad that's gone because they did a little mortadella sandwich uh-huh. in those breadsticks, and you got the, the chew of the olive, and then you got to the mortadella. Oh. Mm. Yeah. Princey is no longer, I don't think. Although they might still be at the roastery. I'm not sure what they're doing at It's no longer with Starbucks? Uh, they gave up the brand. Oh. It didn't, didn't quite work out for them. Anyway, yeah. we need to learn how to make those. But anyway, so in that scenario, you take that same pizza dough and you literally, you work it first with the olives, chop the olives, put them in. Don't chop it too small. And then you do the same thing. You take your pizza cutter to the bowl of pizza dough and you roll them out. And the olives, so you, there's so many, they would literally be falling out of the dough yeah. if you have enough, right? Right. And then you just bake them and the dough kind of bakes up and around the chunks of olives. They, they look like they're not going to stay in, but as the dough rises, it kind of encompasses the olives. Kind of like the olive bread idea, same idea. Such and a delicious snack. Though. Yeah, and you could do that with nuts, too. You, instead of doing olives, you could do nuts. You could do toasted hazelnut, ground, you know, break them down into small pieces, put that in your dough, and then finish that the same way. With a little cheese, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Can you taste the olive in this breadstick? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. So I would recommend this breadstick to anyone. This is a different style. This is a dry bake. Yeah, the dry version. And actually baked in Piemonte. It smells like olive and it tastes like olives, which is really nice. Perfect for the martini. What is your favorite dip (laughs) for breadsticks? Me? When I have when I have a trashy a trashy night after maybe too many glasses of wine or something and you get the munchies, I go to my my uh, snack drawer and I get out the breadsticks, and I go right over to the cube of butter that's on the counter and I just literally drag my breadsticks right across the cube of it's butter. It's funny because that was the only thing that wasn't in there already. <laughs> I love tapenade. <laughs> yeah, me too. I love tapenade. Yeah. Tapenade and breadstick is a beautiful start. What did you bring for us today, Pam? It's a, a caviar spread, terra salada. So it's, what was it, roe type in it? Codfish. Codfish roe. And it's uh, creamy Cough. from the canola whip. Ah. Isn't that the first ingredient? Yeah. I think if we were going to make it, we would use some sort of rich dairy. What? No, probably olive oil. But Olive um, oil? This is classic Greek. I mean, you the see first this ingredient on every menu. Is canola oil and the second is carp roe. Yeah, I mean, this is a beautiful spread. I would definitely uh, recommend this on an easy way to make toast or to make anything with that because it's got a beautiful umami. I think it's really nice. It's never been my favorite. I've always, uh, you see this on every Greek restaurant and it's just never been, I think. Do you know what it's time for, Chef? Oh, I guess it's time for Tasty Trivia. Food for thought, rub with love, Tasty Trivia right here on the hot stove. We're going to make mincemeat out of Chef Bridget Charters. Maybe. Mincemeat. All right, here we go. It's time for Rub With Love Tasty Trivia right here at the Hot Stove Society Show. Rub With Love is a family of spice blends, tangy sauces, and if I do say so myself, a perfect shallot mustard. Keep them in your pantry to dress up any meal. You can buy them at Wild Salmon Seafood Market at Fisherman's Terminal. Skagit's own fish market in Burlington, Seattle Fish Guys on 23rd Avenue South in, in uh, West Seattle, and Princess Seafoods, Fort Bragg, California, all across the country are online at tomdouglas.com. Pamela, we're ready for this, and we have Chef Charters is going to join us. And she, uh, other than our Chef Elmore here, you know, oddly enough, there's a bunch of egomaniacs here at the hospital there are. <laughs> that think they can kick our butts every week. And but they Terry do and I, mostly. We, Annie, come Don't here. Don't give come in like me. that. <laughs> I'm not giving in. You're giving in. I'm just saying they do mostly. All right, tell us how to play the game, and uh, I know I'm going to win, so let's talk about who the loser is going to be. Oh, oh, well, I, uh, the questions are all about American food. I was feeling Ooh. kind of patriotic and sentimental late last night, Oof. and so I think Terry's going to lose. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make the question next week. Yeah, e- each person's getting uh, three questions, and five. the one—I mean, five questions—and the one with the most wrong is the loser. <laughs> Who, they pay for shipping, right? Who's going to be the uh, recipient of the of the gift today? This beautiful woman in the front row. What is your name, please? Diane is our winner today wow, of nice. uh, three of our new rubs. Oh, beautiful! Nice. Yeah, we're going to get to pick them out. So, whoever the loser is, which. We'll they're, deliver they're already, them. She already decided it was me. I'll, I'll be <laughs> delivering the package. <laughs> All right, let's do this. All right, go ahead. Mr. Rotoro? Yes. Which food was rationed after World War II ended, but not during the war? Wait, I was going to go with the... Starts what did they make in Hawaii with the wasabi? I mean... Uh, Masubi? Wait, what do they make? What do they call it? Spam. 
bread. <laughs> well, spam was a much better item. I thought that, would have, been, that would have been funny if they ran out of spam after the war. What company or the name of the person invented condensed milk? Oh, everybody knows oh. that. Really? <laughs> it's not Nestle, is it? <laughs> you know who invented condensed starts milk? starts with a B. With a B. Yep, that does not on it. That does not help me. Mr. So, uh, Mr. Borden. Is it, is it the name? Borden? Borden. Beautiful. Gail Did anybody Borden. in the audience know that? Okay, <laughs> can, you, can, can you come here and... I need an assistant. Can you come here and be my assistant? I knew bread, too. You knew bread, too. Get up oh. there, Jim. Okay, oh, we're, okay, we're retrieving. I think you're going to so need Jim. Jim. Jim's going to be my assistant here. Number three, Charlie Chaplin ate a boot in the movie Gold Rush. What was the boot made out of? You actually know the answer? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I called an assistant. He knew the first two answers. He doesn't know this one. Licorice. Um, oh, that's a Licorice great idea. Licorice would not have gotten that. So far, what? I'm scoring really well. <laughs> Number four, what two ingredients make the dish angels on horseback? Go ahead. Oysters. Or, yeah, oysters and bacon. Yes. Yes, thank you, Jim. Thank <laughs> you. Five, helping we carry get, we get, get on the scoreboard. What are the two items uh, that make up the dish devils on horseback? Is it eggs? No. No. Uh, it's bacon. Yep. And dried fruit. Dried oh. fruit raisins? Prunes. Prunes. Yay, two for Team Terry. Whoa. <laughs> you know what's a good thing I had a... Way to go, chef. I mean, Good Jim. thing I had a help with Jim. Thank you so much for putting me on the board. Because I think I would have done about a zero here. Two. All right, all right, Bridget. We're touring America now. All right. Um, got some multiple choice to start. Which U.S. city does the poor boy, a type of submarine sandwich, using a French-style bread... Where does it trace its origins to? New Orleans, Los Angeles, Memphis, or Juneau? New Orleans. Exactly. <laughs> I, I knew that. Your, <laughs> uh, your culinary tour of Arizona starts with breakfast. How about pancakes made with flour ground from which pods of which desert tree? Your options are sequoia, yew, maple, or mesquite? Mesquite. Yes. How come I didn't get options? <laughs> Multiple guests. Sorry, Stop Terry. whining, chef. It's not I, pretty. I'm, I'm not whining. <laughs> Number three. Showing the... Uh... What Pennsylvania Dutch breakfast tree uses the leftover meat from pork? The favorite food of Tom. Scrapple. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so I would have not... Pam, do you want to discuss I taught what American parts of the... <laughs> want... Pam loves to you talk did? about what parts of the pig are in Scrapple. <laughs> Ooh, Not like yet. the eyeballs and the Snout, eyelids and all the of the otters, the tail. Now we're traveling to Boston. Okay. And you're headed to the ye old Union Oyster House for the area's signature dish, a soup made from cream, milk, potatoes, dill, celery, bacon, onions, and what popular mollusk? Oysters. No, clams. Clams. Oh, oh, I knew that. Oh. oh. <laughs> One for dairy. You're groveling, chef. Do I get, do I get two more? Yes. Uh, which Amer? Do you want multiple choice? Or you want to just go bold on this one? Which American state is Creole cuisine associated with? 
Louisiana. Yeah. Oh my God. You don't need. Oh my no God. These are all my questions. Super bold. So you got to mix it up. Like <laughs> you when she says it. You know. Five out of five, Bridget. No, Woo. I got one wrong. I got one wrong. Okay. Tom Douglas. Four out of five. Which of the following topics would not be found on a classic Chicago hot dog? Celery, salt, mustard, ketchup, or onions? Would not, not be found. Uh, I'm going to go with ketchup. Correct. Number two. Oof. What do gizzards, chitlins, and tripe have in common? Nobody wants to order them. <laughs> uh, Think about their origin. Well, gizzards are from, they're from animals. <laughs> More. That is true. <laughs> it's a classification. That, they're innards. Yeah. Yep. Organ meats would be considered the correct answer. Gizzards are part of the chicken's digestive tract. Chitlins are pig intestines, and tripe is cow's stomach. Absolutely. Like, I don't like, think he's getting like that I one. said. Absolutely. I would say yeah. I would say he's got it. I mean, he said oh, organs. No. Okay, no. Jim no. says no over there in the audience. Oh, he's Woo. supporting you. It's tough out there. Oh. What fabulous dessert is made from a fruit that was brought to Florida by the Spanish and the Portuguese. Key lime pie. Yes, you got it. Uh, now um, we're going to Buffalo, and after Wings. being deep Anchor fried bar. and coated in hot sauce, <laughs> what poultry part is often served with sides of celery sticks and blue cheese dressing? Chicken uh, wings at the Anchor yeah. Bar. Yeah. Have you had them there? No. Oh. Oh, man, this is a gimme. Uh, in New York City, you're in need of a libation. What signature cocktail do you... Manhattan. Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> I would have gotten all of these. Oh, my God. All right, I guess that makes Chef Thierry our loser today. Loser. So, uh, we kind of watch you walk over and bring the uh, winning prize to our winner. To Diane, yes, to I will. I will okay, gladly so. do that. If you want to be part of our show, you can join our community on YouTube. Get the link on our Tom Douglas website. If you're listening to the Hot Stove Society show on Cairo Radio, 97.3 FM. The show is produced by Pamela Hinckley, Sean McFadden, and our editor is Sean, don't call me Del Torre. Also remember, if you miss any episode of our Hot Stove Society show on Cairo, you can listen via podcast. Just subscribe with your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to support Ukraine and have a wonderful weekend.